0: You know, before we get started, I'm going to read verse 3 from that song that we just sang. So this, I'm going to pray in a minute, we'll get started in a second. But I don't know if there could have been a better setup song for the message that we're going to be looking at today. And it says in verse 3, so I'll walk upon salvation. That's sanctification language. I'm going to explain that in this message. So get that word in your mind, Sanctification. I'll walk upon salvation, your spirit alive in me, my life to declare your promise, my soul now to stand. I think maybe whoever wrote that song, maybe they got that at least in part from Philippians chapter 2. So if, go ahead and open up to Philippians chapter 2. Hope you have your Bibles with you. Listen, if you didn't bring your Bible with you, I don't really want you to feel... Horrible, but I do want you to feel bad because you're to be a person of God's Word. A, we are a church that preaches and teaches and, and puts everything on the Word of God. So if you have your Bible with you on phone or maybe in leather bound or fake leather bound as most of ours are, get it open to Philippians chapter 2 and I'm going to go ahead and have a word of prayer then we'll go ahead and start the message. Heavenly Father, we are going to need your help. Lord, even in this next 40 minutes, Lord, we have no ability in our natural flesh to change ourselves. Lord, you have that power, and your spirit energizes the word of God, which is living and active, breathes it into us. And, Lord, it moves into our minds, and it moves past our minds by faith, and it receives itself, it receives the word into our hearts. Lord, the way that we think, our belief system, the way that we feel, our emotions, our wills, our motives, Lord, all of that gets to collide with the word of God. And if we are a people of your word, then we really do believe that your word is not only the authority over us, the ultimate authority It is the very power to change. And Lord, I would pray that myself included, every single one of us, Lord, please don't let us leave here the the same way we came. We are not finished products, Lord. There is much more to go. And it is exciting to experience it. So Lord, have your way in us. Lord, let your word be alive. Let it be active. Let us approach it, Lord, with ears That want to listen, to obey, not just to hear, but to listen, to obey, Lord. That's what hearing truly is by faith. And Lord, I pray that we would emerge out of this experience, these next 40 minutes, Lord, more like you. We pray for that and we ask for that in Jesus' name, amen. Queen Mary hated Protestantism. And she did all that was possible in her power to return England to Roman Catholic rule. Bibles were removed from churches. Married clergy were forcibly separated from their wives. Protestant leaders were put to death. Two of those leaders, and I'm going to introduce you to them, famous preacher Hugh Latimer and the Bishop of London, Nicholas Ridley, were burned at the stake by Queen Mary she burned them at the end of Broad Street they led them out there in chains and they used those chains to tie them to an upright wooden stake both of them to one stake back to back there was tinder piled around them wood piled around them and I don't know if you know this but customarily they would put pouches of gunpowder around their necks that was actually an act of mercy. Latimer, his brother, gave him a bag and a pouch of gunpowder, tied it around his neck. Rat- Latimer said, Brother, do you have one for Ridley? And he said, Yes, I do. And then put it on him, and he did. The fire was lit. Latimer, almost 80 years old, was the first to die, and he shouted, through the flames, he succumbed to the smoke before the flames killed them. But before he succumbed to the smoke, it is reported that he shouted these words, quote, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall, li- we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust shall never be put out. Unfortunately for bishop ridley the wood had been badly placed his legs caught on fire they burned before it could climb high enough to kill him until finally somebody in mercy moved the burning wood to get to his head where the gunpowder could detonate it was such a gruesome scene that queen mary soon had executions done away from the public eye But the candle was lit on that day and it was shining a light into the terrible darkness in Europe and it was followed by over 300 people burned at the stake for Jesus Christ. Friends, listen, the time is coming, I'm telling you, for many parts of the world that's already here, when you and when I may be asked to die for Christ, but I want you to hear this, right now, We're not being asked to die for Christ. We're being asked to live for Him. How do you do that? How do you live for Christ? That's the subject of this message. And I think what Paul is going to give us in the book of Philippians is a key that can unlock the power of being a light into the darkness of this world. And as we get ready to answer that question, how do you live powerfully this Christian life? Let me return all of us to our beginning text in which we launched this series. Remember, it's 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at verses 11 and 12. We're asking everybody to memorize this. Let me encourage you. Have you memorized these two verses? They're not difficult. They're almost poetic. They flow. Have you put them to memory yet? Listen, look at me for a moment. I'm going to tell you that it might be in our lifetime. I think it is if the Lord tarries. Where Bible ownership will be illegal. That's coming. It was already there in China. Bible ownership is going to be illegal. And if you haven't hidden the word of God into your hearts through memorizing, through committing it to an internal rote almost process, then you're going to really be struggling without your Bible. <coughs> Here's the verses. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, aliens and strangers, (coughs) by the way, I have a cold, and I'm going to get somebody to come up and throw me that bottle of water. (coughs) Thanks, Matthew. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Everybody, this is Matthew, Matthew, everybody. Matthew, come here, read this rest of that while I drink some water you, please. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I forgot he didn't have a microphone. I could have put his head down on my chest. That would have been so loving. <laughs> I was thinking that would be awkward on film. But it would not be the first time, you're right. This is how I mentor him through the week. Matthew, come lay your head down on my chest. (laughs) As we've done in this series, we want to see how do we live in a way that can move the people of this world to glorify God. Now listen, I really want to blazon that into your minds. How do we live in such a way as Christians that can arrest the attention stop and pull the attention of the world not to us not to cornerstone the church but to god for glorifying him how do we do that well that's the answer the we're going to try to answer in this passage we're in philippians chapter 2 this is the alien invasion series let me give you the point number one the christian life is a cooperative responsibility now that sounds odd the christian life is a cooperative Responsibility, let me flesh that out for you. If you got your Bibles open, I hope you do verse 12 of Philippians 2 Therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling now look at that verse Listen, I don't put my main text up on the screen. I do that for a reason because I want you bringing your Bibles If you didn't bring your Bible, there's one right in front of you in that pew. But you've got to be looking at this verse. And when you read it, when you see it, it can kind of be a little troublesome at first. Is Paul saying that we are to save ourselves through sheer effort, work out your own salvation? Listen, I want you to notice the preposition. He did not write work for your own salvation, work out your own salvation. There's a major difference. What is in view here is not the point at which I am justified being declared right with God, being saved, being taken out of the kingdom of the world and placed into the kingdom of God, sealed and adopted. That all happens the moment that you turn to God through Christ Trusting that he will forgive you of your sins that you have by nature and by choice committed. That moment is your justification. That's not what Paul is talking about here. What is in view is what theologians refer to as sanctification. Here's what that big word means it's really not that difficult a word at all. It means it's the process by which God increasingly frees us from sin to become more like christ that's really what sanctification is listen this is what it's like day by day you're walking with god you're in his word you're praying you're in fellowship you're worshiping and you're being freed more and more from the power of sin being freed more and more to serve god become like him in his righteousness and while we have no part and i hope you're hearing this We have no part in accomplishing our salvation. Listen, I didn't look good enough, and then finally God said, okay, you finally got to this plateau of moral, ethical behavior, Tim Ackley. Now I'm going to finally save you. You didn't clean up your act to the point where God finally said, okay, come on in to my family. Listen, I had no part, you had no part in your salvation. But we do cooperate in our sanctification. And that cooperation proceeds, or that cooperation lives, with an attitude, look what Paul writes, with fear and trembling. Now you might be wondering, as I think you probably want to be, why would any child of God fear their Heavenly Father? I mean, look at 1 John 4, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. I really stressed this two weeks ago when we looked at the magnitude of God's love for us. So why does Paul say work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear and trembling? How does that even work in a Christian who understands the incredible love of our Father? But it's not a cringing fear. It's not a fear that is full of terror at the prospect of punishment. That's Terror fear, I'm gonna get caught, I'm gonna get exposed, God's gonna see what I'm doing, and I'm gonna get punished for it. This is not the fear and trembling that Paul's writing about. It's a conscious awareness of my weakness. It starts with that. What is this fear and trembling? You ready? It starts with this. It is you and I learning more and more, I am utterly weak in my own flesh. I am absolutely capable of any sin on this planet. Do you really think, Christian brother and sister, that there is a sin that you would not commit? I'm going to challenge that. I'm going to push back on that a little bit because I would suggest if you think that that sinner is worse than you would ever be, I don't think you understand the power of the depravity of your flesh or my flesh we are capable of any sin therefore when you're looking at the people of the world there really is no room there's no opportunity there's really not even a necessity to judge them because if it wasn't for the grace of God there I go that would be me or that certainly could be me so when you're driving around Easton and you see that person doing something that you think and you cringe from and you think is so terrible listen there ought to be an attitude of grace first of all gratitude that God thank you thank you for what you're doing in me God save that person because that could be me so this fear and this trembling is an awareness of our own weaknesses our own sinfulness and listen it produces zero confidence And Zero reliance on our own strength. This has got to be where you get to when you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling You've got to get to the point where you quit having confidence in your flesh It works against grace. This is why we do communion every month communion is is a confidence killer of your flesh. It arrests your confidence, and it kills it. It locks it away. It punishes it. It diminishes it. When you come to the table, and you see the communion bread and the communion juice, and it reminds you of the body and the blood of Jesus, that he has done everything because we could do nothing, it really seems and ought to lower your confidence and reliance on your own strength. Yet this fear and trembling, this zero confidence and reliance on our strength, listen, it doesn't produce despair. Because the gospel's power in us is convincing us that God is relentlessly loving to his children. His power is able to give you the strength that you need in order to do what he's asking you to do. And what begins to emerge in the Christian whose heart is fearful and trembling, who has zero confidence in your own strength and absolute confidence in God's love, what emerges is adoration and awe for Jesus Christ. It lifts and exalts him higher. Paul is telling the church, keep growing church keep growing in christ keep being sanctified jesus who was obedient to the point of death so keep growing in him who was obedient to the point of death be confident in the gracious working of god in you but there's been a problem historically there's always been a problem it's been around for since the 17th century and it's still around today there's two bipolar extreme positions when it comes to sanctification how do we grow more like christ that's sanctification two extremes one you're not going to probably or you might be but you may not be familiar with the word but you will when i flesh it out one is quietism quietism which sees the christian as basically doing nothing in the process of sanctification you want to grow like christ you don't do anything the slogans are let go let god or abide in christ or i can't god can if you've read her famous book on this hinds feet in high places then that's a book about quietism and those who practice quietism Believe in the mystical and contemplative and experiential approach of loving Jesus and you rest in Jesus and you abide in Jesus, and what's going to happen in you is this transformation into more Christ like living. They believe that striving against sin and practicing self discipline is futile, it's unspiritual. In fact, it gets in the way of sanctification. That's quietism, that's one extreme. Been around since the 17th century it actually i think was a reaction to the second one which is pietism pietism well quietism was you do nothing pietism is you do everything you got to do everything if you want to be sanctified so really strong emphasis on bible studying and and holy living and practicing christianity and the disciplines and it often leads to legalism and moralism and self righteousness, a judgmental spirit. Now, listen, you got to hear this. Is it wrong to study the Bible? Is it wrong to learn the disciplines of? Fellowship and worship and prayer. Absolutely not It's the reliance on those to make you more like Christ That's pietism and that's what produces Legalism, so you've got one criticism of pietists that they're so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good It tends to fill a person with self-righteousness Paul brings both together he doesn't err on one extreme or the other. Christians do all the time. The gospel doesn't. The gospel brings them both. They both work together. Sanctification is a process where we cooperate with God, listen, in response to the work that he's doing in us. Now, you've got to get that. That is really, really important. Sanctification is cooperation with God. You've got to hear the second part as we respond to what god is already doing in us now let's find it in the text look at verse 13. this is how genius minded paul is for it is god who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure now bring that back to verse 12. work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for or because or since It is God who's already working in you, present tense, to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, sanctification, if you, listen, I'm telling you the secret that Paul's giving us. If you want to be more like Christ, if you want to grow more mature, if you want to walk on your salvation, as that song says that we sang, the stand, if you want to grow, here's how you do it. It's obeying what God is enabling just commit that to memory it flows i could wrap it i'd be embarrassed it is it is obeying what god is enabling it's a response of obedience to what god is doing in our hearts listen if god is not working in your heart to produce the ability to obey him you cannot obey him And if he is working in you to produce the ability to obey him and you refuse to obey him, you're not going to grow. He's got to do the prior work. You respond in a response of cooperation and you begin to be transformed by the power of the spirit of God into Christ likeness. I'm going to sum it up like this. I would encourage you to write it down. What God is giving the Christian is the want to, to do what we ought to. Now let me explain this briefly. If you imagine this Christian life as being this begrudging, frustrating, I really don't want to do this, but I have to, or I'm not going to be blessed kind of living, you do not understand the power of God. You don't understand what he's doing. What God is doing in us now, listen, this is key. He's changing our disposition He's changing our attitude. He's flooding our hearts with desire so that the things he wants me to do listen It's the things I want to do and the things that God doesn't want me to do Well, he's flooding me with a desire to never want to do it again I had to learn this it took me years I was a really, really heavy drinker. I couldn't stop. I had alcoholism in my family, both sides, my mom's and my dad's. I just could not stop drinking. I would get so mad at myself, and I would promise God, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to get drunk again. And next thing I know, my friend's saying, hey, we're going out. Okay, I'll come out. I'm not going to drink, though. I would tell him, I'm not going to drink. Next thing I know, 2 o'clock in the morning, I'm coming home drunk. I couldn't stop. And I'm praying, and I'm going, God, I don't know what's wrong with me. I know I'm convicted. I shouldn't be getting drunk. Listen, it's okay to have a beer. It's okay to have a wine, a glass of wine. There's nothing teetotaling about God, in my view. I think he created this. I think that was real wine that Jesus drank. But Jesus never drank to excess. Jesus always considered the people around him. And that's what we have to do. And so I'm going, Lord, I can't stop. I don't know how to stop this. And all of a sudden, what happened to me, I could not even pinpoint the day it occurred what happened in me was I just didn't desire to get drunk anymore I'm in the Word of God I'm praying I'm in fellowship I'm serving him in my church in Virginia and all of a sudden I woke up one day and I'm realizing you know what I have not I got drunk in a long time I don't even want to anymore he took the temptation Away, this is where I disagree with the alcoholic mindset that once you're an alcoholic, you're always one. Listen, you're a new creature in Christ. He gives you a new mind. He gives you a new heart. He floods you with new attitudes, new desires, new dispositions. You're not new, built on the old. You're radically different. That's the power of the gospel. But it is God working in us to want to do what we ought to do. There is no progress in spiritual maturity without our effort, but our effort alone will accomplish nothing. There is cooperation of responsibility between us and God. Think of the word responsibility for a moment. Think of it. Responsibility. All that is is the ability to respond. That's what God gives us. He's flooding it into us Christian as you stay in God's word as you are in fellowship at church Are you worshiping and you're serving him and you're learning to pray? He is putting into you more and more increasingly the ability to respond to what he is clearly asking of us And that's sanctification and we see this all through the Bible, this cooperation with God, what God is putting in us. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 10 on the screen. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It was God's power, and Paul was walking with God, Paul was cooperating and responding to what God was doing. Colossians 1 utterly clear for I for this I toil Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is sanctification God Christian brother and sister is working powerfully in you and you respond to that you Cooperate with that because he's giving you the want to to do the ought to Hebrews 13 now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us so just put a little sign may the god of peace be working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through jesus christ to whom be glory forever and ever james masterfully brings both together so also faith by itself if it does not have works is dead faith without works is dead There is a cooperative responsibility. William Booth, the the man who started the Salvation Army, summed it up brilliantly. He once said, faith and works should travel side by side, step answering to step like the legs of men walking. First, faith. Notice that? Underscore it. Faith precedes works always. You cannot do what is pleasing to God without the faith that he puts in your heart. Faith first and then works and then faith again and then works again until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. And this is what it looks like when you begin maturing in Christ. They blend together so that your faith and your works become one. Now I want to capture what I just said before we launch into the second point. I'm going to pick it up a little bit. What we just said was this. Verse 13 really could precede verse 12 if you look at it. God is at work within us to work and to will will and to work according to his good pleasure. To will, to want, and to do, to work according to his good pleasure. So then, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just flip the two and you've got it but what does it mean his good pleasure now listen look at me this is absolutely critical and it's going to be our launching pad to point 2 if you want to have a life christian brother and sister that brings glory to god quote for his good pleasure that's all that means For his good pleasure is a life that brings glory to him. If you want a life that brings glory to God, then he must be at work within you. And when he is working in you and you begin to respond in cooperation, then this is what it's going to look like. Point number two. The Christian life is one where we shine as lights in the world. You cannot shine as lights in the world if God is not doing his work in us. Do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Take your Bibles if you would, flip it over forward, two chapters, chapter four. Would you do that with me? Look at chapter four, verse two. This is what's happening in the church at philippi paul's writing them he's in prison by the way i'll tell you that in a little bit later he's sitting in prison in rome he's writing this letter of encouragement man he loves his church his church makes him happy but they've got a problem they got two ladies iodia and syntyche and they're quarreling and they're fighting and they're affecting the whole church they're affecting the whole church By the way, ladies, if you wanted to ever understand your power of influence, here is one of the verses that can help you see it. You influence the church for good, and you can influence the church for bad. Let's just be honest. Throw your darts at me if you want to. That's fine. I got an armor-plated Ephesians 6 breastplate. I'm a little vulnerable right at the neck, though. Listen, ladies, use your mouths for Christ. And use your power and your energy and your mercy because you got more of it than most of us men. Use your mercy for the glory of God. Don't get caught up in quarreling and disputing because it will affect the church. And that's what's happening here. So Paul talks about it. Now, their quarrel wasn't over doctrine, well, Pastor Tim, how do you know that? Because if it was, Paul would have cleared it up with teaching. That's what he does. All through his epistles. Listen, if you got a quarrel erupting in a church over an issue of doctrine, Paul writes, masterfully clears it up. It's not over doctrine. We don't know what it is, but we know it's not doctrine. Instead, Paul entreats them, he pleads with them to agree in the Lord. Their conflict was spreading, which is the cancerous power of grumbling and disputing. Now go back to chapter 2 and look at verse 14 again. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. What does that mean? Grumbling is complaining and whining. John MacArthur puts it this way every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord. And is one of the ugliest sins do you see what I just did you see what MacArthur just did He took our grumbling that we think is horizontal To the church leadership to that other person in the church to that person at work My dorm mate we take grumbling that we think is horizontal MacArthur uncovers it and shows you no, no 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 that's vertical you're complaining against God Because if God is sovereign, which I believe he is, and the Bible is unanimously vocal and convincing that he is, if God is sovereign, then he's got that difficult person in your life. He's got that trial in your life. He's got that congestion and the traffic on Route 78 in your life. And to grumble against any of those is to grumble against the God who sovereignly chose it for you. So let's get this utterly real. You ready? Now listen, this ought to permeate us so that when we complain, we realize we're going vertical. We're going against God. A grumbling heart is a heart that is dissatisfied with God. It is a heart filled with unbelief. I'm going to prove it to you. Look what Numbers 14 says. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now look at me for a moment. Pastor Tim, it's horizontal. No, it starts horizontal. It looks horizontal. Keep reading. Then all the congregation said to stone them. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise you and Aaron? No, me. It's vertical. And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, in spite of all the proof that I've given to them, listen, if you're stuck in traffic, God is saying, I put you here so that you can learn patience and maybe even pray a little bit more. And if you've got a difficult roommate in college, I'm the one that matched you up so that I can chisel some of these things out of your life. And if that person in that church really annoys you, listen, they're in the family of God because I brought them there and I brought you here and I brought you into the same local assembly to learn to love because you're not very good at it. This is what's behind grumbling. This is what's behind complaining. This is what James, why he really ratchets it up and says how terrible it is when a Christian complains against another Christian Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So you and I, we're at odds. We're grumbling with each other, grumbling against each other. Right behind us is the judge, the Holy Father, and he's not looking with pleasure. If you want to be a light In this twisted generation then it's got to be a church that stops grumbling and stops disputing and that's where he goes next grumbling Christians cause disputing one goes into the other and disputing is a word it ironically listen to this what disputing means is to pass judgment on another's opinions and it causes dissension or disunity That's where the the word originated. So grumbling has more to do with emotions disputing more intellectualism. And together, look what they do. Look what Paul says. It's a gigantic church zit. It's a blemish. How often have you thought yourself beautiful when you have a big splotch of acne right on your forehead the church doesn't look any better it's a blemish upon the church when we grumble with each other when it leads to disunity and makes us look no different in fact we blend into this crooked and twisted generation you get the imagery crooked and twisted well that's what the church looks like When we dispute and when we grumble listen when you have something against a sister or a brother in your church whether you go to cornerstone or not the gospel tells you how to deal with it leave your gift at the altar stop worshiping god saying i'm not taking that that's not coming from pure heart that doesn't have clean hands and clean feet behind it go leave your gift go back to the person who has something against you and make it right then come back and worship or, he says, be at peace with all men as long as it depends on you. Well, if somebody's offended you, listen, it's to your glory to overlook an offense. But if they do it again and again and it becomes a pattern, well, listen, separ- that will separate close friends, Proverbs says. You've got to deal with it. How do you deal with it? Matthew 18 Take a witness. If you've gone first and they're not listening, you go back and take a witness. If they're not listening, you go get an elder or a leader in the church. If they're not listening, here comes church discipline. We don't do this. And yet it's been so clear how to work and how to love in the community of God's people. Christian, we cannot live this way and we have god's help verses 13 verse 13 we have god's help in order to live for his good pleasure god will never command the christian to do what he does not promise to make possible look what second peter 1 3 says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory in excellence god will never ask you to do what he is not going to give you the ability to do and all of his power through the spirit of god lives and dwells in every christian and he dwells in every church that is centered around christ he gives us everything we need to not grumble to not disunify but to love if you want to be a light in the darkness of this world you got to be a church that knows how to love You do that through the knowledge of him, Philippians 2. Through the knowledge of him, that's the scriptures. When you know this because you're in this and it lives in you, you will go to that person. You will find it easy to overlook a transgression. You will find it easy to humble yourself and to go make it right. It's going to be natural because God is moving through the word in your life to get you going. And you hold fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So God is powerfully working in our hearts, brother and sister in Christ, so that we have the will, the desire, and the ability to live for his pleasure, meaning to live for his glory. And the church brings god glory and we shine as lights in this world when we refuse to grumble when we refuse to dispute with one another we have two powerful examples to encourage us and that's point number three the christian life is encouraged by the power of example this last week we dropped our son aaron off at the airport knowing That he will be in a matter of days deploying to Afghanistan, into a hot area. And I'm telling you, you know, you experience the gamut of emotions. Everyone in our family handles that difficulty differently. Here's how I handle it. I've always been like this. I retreat. I go inward. While I work through the the emotions, I don't I don't work through my emotions with people I just don't do that very well I retreat and I pray I meditate on Scripture I'm telling you what my heart was breaking the Lord led me to Psalm 131 Psalm 91 instant peace flooded me took away my fear, took away my anxiety, where I could lead my family to courage and to confidence. It was the power of God's word. That's what I do. I retreat, I go in the word, and I pray. But always in my thoughts, and this was happening Wednesday morning as we're dropping them off, in my thoughts, always, with this experience of Aaron being in the army, is the knowledge that many of you have already walked this road ahead of us? You don't know how much you've encouraged us. You don't know how powerful your example has been to Denise and to me as we've had to let go and give our son over. So, Christian, don't ever underestimate the power of your own example of faithfulness to christ in fact 17th century thomas brooks he wrote this example is the most powerful rhetoric it's amazing and the most powerful example for us is detailed in the passage before this one verses 1 through 11 where we see G, uh, paul writes in verse 5 have this mind among yourselves which is yours in christ jesus so that's example language watch jesus he's your example and look at the humility of jesus he went to the to the cross he was obedient to the point of death he humbled himself he set aside all of his divine privileges he took the form of the lowest servant and he died for you that's example par excellence it's the greatest you're ever going to see and then to a lesser degree look at verse 17 he points to his own example even if i am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith i am glad and rejoice with you all likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me See, it's the power of example to encourage us to live for God's good pleasure, live for God's glory. Look what Paul writes. Even if I am to be poured out. By the way, that's a bad translation because the Greek is in the present tense. It's better translated, even if I am being poured out. This is something that's already occurring in him. He is in prison. Now, some people think he's about to die. That he knows that his martyrdom, which will happen eventually, is about to occur. That's not true. He doesn't die for about another five years. In fact, look at verse 24. He's confident that he's going to come visit them soon. This is not Paul saying, I'm being poured out as a drink offering and about to die. This is Paul saying, I am, I am sacrificing myself now for you. What is a drink offering that's a little odd because we don't ever do this a drink offering is not a toast where you lift a glass of champagne at a wedding a drink offering was built into the Levitical system of sacrifice all through the Old Testament the pagan religions used it as well It was a glass of wine, sometimes honey, sometimes water, sometimes oil, but usually wine that was poured out either on top of the sacrificial animal that was on the altar or in front of the altar on the ground. And what its purpose was, was to symbolize the one who is going to come and pour out his life for all of us, Jesus. And it was to create an aromatic pleasure to the sacrificial animal. Put a pleasing aroma in the air. And so in this imagery, what Paul is saying is this, that he's being poured out as a drink offering. Watch, you got to get this. He's being poured out onto something. What is that something? We'll look at verse that follows. Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith see the drink offering was the lesser offering the main offering was the animal on the altar paul says look at me i'm the lesser offering i'm being poured out on top of your sacrificial giving church at philippi i'm being poured out on you you're the main deal he writes in 2 corinthians 12 i will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls This is Paul in his language saying, I am so thankful to be the lesser offering in comparison to all that you're doing as you shine the light of Christ in your twisted, crooked generation. I am pleased to be poured out on you. All my effort, all my labor is for you. Now, I told you about the martyrdom of Latimer and Ridley at the beginning. Ridley's awful death and it took a while it moved hundreds of spectators to tears but one of the people that was standing there one of the persons standing there he was forced to watch was a guy named Bishop Thomas Cramner he was standing there with fear and trembling because he had just recently recanted of his faith recanted of his Protestantism He signed his name on a writ and declaration that he would no longer uphold the Protestant faith. But even despite him signing that, Queen Mary sentenced him to burn. And five months after Ridley and Latimer, he was led to the exact same spot. He was put on a stake. Wood was piled around him, tinder at the base of that. I don't know if they had gunpowder pouches on his neck, nobody says, but it was lit on fire. You want to know what happened? This is most amazing. See, they try to require the victim to read their recantation, but he refused. Instead, he boldly stating that he was a Protestant, he admitted he was a cowardly one. And he declared, and I'm quoting Cramner, For as much as my hand offended, writing contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished. And true to his word, as the fires were lit, he held out his hand that had signed that recantation and he let the flames burn it away before his own life was consumed in a blazing light to England. The power of, of Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer's deaths sparked a revolution. Soon Queen Mary was disposed, and in her place came someone who was favorable to Protestantism, and the gospel went forth around Europe again. We could be glad. And we can rejoice because look what Paul writes in verse 17. I am glad and I rejoice with you all. I'm being poured out as a drink offering on you. Man, I'm expending my life and labor and toil for you. And I am glad and I rejoice. And I want you to see my example because likewise, look at verse 18, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Take joy in the gospel. If you're serving to the point where you don't know if you can continue, be glad because you're being poured out as a drink offering. You shouldn't go to bed with energy. You should go to bed fatigued, Because you're serving God. And when there are people in our church that do this, it energizes as the example for us all. I want you to see your text again. In the English Standard Version of which I'm preaching out of, the word you occurs five times. If you've got the NIV, it's six times. You got the word your a couple times listen look at me for a moment this i'm going to end with this this is really important you can be americanized in your thinking and believe that paul's writing to an individual or a few individuals that's not what he's writing to you is plural you is the church you is the community of the redeemed you is all of god's people together And we become more like Christ. We are sanctified more like Christ in community. Listen, if you're on the fringe, and I tell you this all the time, if you're on the fringe, you will not grow in Christ. You got to come in got to come into the redemptive power of community where we teach one another, we admonish one another, we encourage one another, we sharpen one another, we admit sin to one another, we cry with one another, we weep with one another, we pray with one another. That's sanctification. That's how you respond in cooperation with what God is doing in you being the church where we learn to become like Jesus. God wants us to live in a way that glorifies him. He wants us to live for his good pleasure. And he knows we need help, so he is working in us with his great power, and he is changing us day by day. And we are to respond to his power with obedience, refusing to complain against each other, refusing to dispute with each other because it's a vertical problem. You're complaining and you're fighting with God. That's the utter, naked, terrifying truth of that. And we hold together and unity and love, and we prove to never be a blemish on God's church. Instead, encouraging each other, being examples of selfless service to one another. We will shine as lights in this world. We will be aliens and strangers in this life. Listen, we will be beacons for our great and glorious God. Amen. Let's pray for the help to do just that. Father, we know we need help. This is much easier to preach than it is to live. And Lord, it is hard not to complain. It is hard not to dispute. But Lord, thank you for verse 13. Thank you for verse 12. Lord, thank you that the truth is that you are working in us, the church, to will, to want, to work for your good pleasure, for your glory. And we can respond to that we can work that out in fear and trembling knowing how weak we are in our flesh how desperately we need to walk with you and how amazing your love for us is lord let us not be a blemish on your glory lord don't let us do that i pray father that the moment we get angry the moment someone offends us at that moment your spirit will move us to love to cover it over but if it's a habit to go to them and to work it through to bring your gifts back to the altar lord let us serve each other as drink offerings lord considering the other person's service greater than our own let that humility be in us that was in jesus earlier in this chapter let us take joy as paul did let that example of christ and the example of paul permeate us and pull us on in the sanctification so that we could become more like jesus christ lord encourage us help us walk out of here tonight determined we will walk with you as you are pouring your energy into us in jesus name we pray amen
1: suffered as if he did